I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 1 and 2, and then verse 17 as we conclude our study on the Ten Commandments together this evening. Before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our great God, we thank You for the wonder and truth and beauty of Your law. We thank You for these last number of weeks in which we've been able to spend time considering the extent of that which is required of us. Um, May we, even this night, see how Your law of truth drives us again and again to Christ our Lord, to marvel and wonder at the beauty of His perfection on our behalf. And may our response as those redeemed in Christ Jesus be one of increased gratitude, growing in contentment, resting in your fatherly care and goodness for each one of us. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And verse 17 You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, this evening we wrap up our study through the Ten Commandments, but of course we're just about halfway through the book of Exodus, so we still have a few more weeks to go. I hope that over these last number of weeks, as we've sort of slowed down and taken time on these Sunday evenings to look at each one of the Ten Commandments, that you have come not only to a greater understanding of the scope of the law of the Lord, that it is meant to be applied to the mind and heart, to words and behavior of the believer in the Lord Jesus, but I hope that you've also come to a greater sense of awe at the perfection of our Savior who had such great love for the law of the Lord that he obeyed it perfectly, perpetually throughout his entire life for those of us who are lawbreakers, for the honor and glory of his Father in heaven. Now, both the larger and shorter catechisms, as well as the Heidelberg Catechism, have great sections in which there's exposition on the Ten Commandments. The Heidelberg Catechism, after it finishes this teaching on the Decalogue, acknowledges that no one, not even the holiest of men, can keep the commandments of God perfectly. So then it goes on to ask, and this is question and answer 115, why will God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached, since no man in this life can keep them? It answers like this, first, that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature, and thus become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. Likewise, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God until we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in the life to come. And so, how can we profit from considering the breadth and depth of the law? How can it benefit us to consider all the ways in which we fall short in all that is required of us, also that we are constantly being driven to Christ our Lord, coming to Him both for His forgiveness and cleansing and the covering of His righteousness, and that we might long for greater and greater conformity to His law as we press on toward our heavenly home. You see, it's the Pharisee who is content with outward conformity to the law 
merely addressing externals of life, but it is the believer in Christ who longs for inward righteousness. So let's keep those things in mind as we look at the 10th commandment this evening. Now, the 10th commandment is interesting because in some ways it's a summary of the entire law since a covetous heart is what drives us in these other areas of rebellion. And so whether it's theft or lying, murder, adultery, even idolatry, it all starts with a covetous or envious heart. Now, the first nine commandments, they start by looking at behavior, but then as you dwell upon them, you see how they press to consider the heart behind that behavior. But the 10th commandment, notice how it starts with the heart, and then it considers the inordinate desires as the heart makes itself evident. Herman Bovink comments that in the 10th commandment, the law burrows through to the root of sin, revealing our covetous desires. It's an interesting way, isn't it, to think of this 10th commandment, that it burrows deep within, exposing and revealing those deep motives that reside in the heart of each one of us. And so first, let's define coveting and consider how to distinguish coveting from appropriate desires. And so this is our first point this evening, simply defining coveting, defining coveting. Now, desires of the heart can be very complex and complicated things to consider because not all desires are sinful and therefore not all desires are covetous desires. As finite and dependent creatures, there are certain desires that God has given to us and they are appropriate desires. We might think of those things like desires for food and water, the desire for shelter and gainful employment to provide for a family, a desire for a spouse and children and friendships. These are all good and appropriate desires. But even more than that, I would argue that it's okay to desire a certain quality to those things. It's okay to desire to have a nice meal and plan ahead, sit down with family and friends and to hope and pray for a good and beneficial conversation over that meal. It's okay to desire a safe and comfortable home where your children can play outside and you have space to be hospitable. It's okay to desire a job that matches your skill sets in which you are shown respect by fellow coworkers. It's okay to desire a godly spouse and faithful children. And it's good to pray to the Lord's for his provision for such things. But those good and appropriate desires can quickly turn to sinful coveting when a desire for a good thing becomes an inordinate desire, an excessive desire. The scriptures refer to this even as an over-desire. So how do we know when this happens in our life? How do we know when a desire for a good thing has actually turned to a sinful and covetous longing? Well, when a desire for a good thing becomes a longing that I believe that I must have, I need to have, I deserve to have, and if I don't have it, then I believe that I am justified in my response of anger and frustration toward God or others who are keeping me from having that which I believe I'm deserving of. Maybe it's something that started as an appropriate desire, but has grown within because it has not been met, and we begin to obsess over it. It dominates the mind. It rules the heart. It's something that I believe that I must have, 
or I will never be happy and fulfilled. It's to yearn for something that you lack. If only I had more money, then I wouldn't have so much stress in my life. If only I had a better job. If only I had a spouse or that home or however we might fill in that blank. If only, then I would be content, fulfilled, and never crave anything else. A few weeks ago, you might recall that we looked at King Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 21, who wanted the vineyard of Naboth, which was right next to the palace, so that the king could turn it into a vegetable garden. Now, one might be able to make the case that his initial request was not yet coveting. Let's swap your vineyard for another. I'll give you a better one, a larger one, one with more mature vines and therefore more lucrative for you, or I'll give you a fair price for it. But when Naboth replies that he will not because this land is not merely land, but it's an inheritance from the Lord. And the Lord told his people clearly that they are to keep the land that is allotted to them from one generation to the next. At that point, Ahab, of course, should have backed off and actually should have been exhorted and convicted by that righteousness of Naboth. But instead, he coveted. And that desire within grew to be a controlling, dominating longing of his heart. The king of Israel then sat on his sofa and pouted and sulked like a spoiled little child until his wife, the wicked queen Jezebel, came along and schemed together with him to have Naboth's name tarnished and then killed so he could take his land from him. And perhaps some of you children have felt the same way when you've wanted something really badly for Christmas or for your birthday. You make those not-so-subtle hints toward your parents that this is the only thing you want this year. You're only asking for one thing. I know it's a big thing, and maybe together it equals a little bit more than what you would have gotten and all those little things, but it's just one thing. And then you open all of those presents, and you don't get it. And then to make it worse, your friend gets what you wanted and you become envious, and you become jealous of her. Why can't I have those amazing parents? Why does she always get what she wants? I only ask for one thing, and I never, hardly ever ask for anything, and I'm more deserving. She's just spoiled because she's an only child. She gets everything that she wants, but it's just not fair. Kevin DeYoung points out that coveting is not just noticing what other people have, but it's noticing the disparity the disparity between what others have and I don't have. Maybe you've seen this when you've volunteered in the nursery here at church. Little toddler picks up a toy, little toy car to play with it. It's a little scuffed, not as shiny as his at home. He's not really interested in it, so he tosses it aside. Then his fellow toddler comes along and sees it and plays with it. He's in vivid imagination. He's content and having fun. And then the first boy sees how much fun he's having doesn't really want the toy. He just doesn't like the fact that his friend is having so much fun. And so he snatches it from him and claims that he's the one that had it first. He doesn't like the disparity. And so he's perfectly fine robbing the other of joy because of the selfishness that is bound up in his young heart. Very simply, coveting is wanting something that is not rightfully yours. And it's being angry when another has it with no thought to how that coveting, longing, and even grasping for that thing that belongs to another is affecting others around you. 
Mark Jones writes that envy or coveting allows you to smile at your neighbor and say, nice SUV that you have there, while you harbor anger within your heart towards him. Now, coveting is so destructive because for months, even for years, it can remain beneath the surface within mind and heart, sort of working as a poison eating away within, known only between you and God. But as that covetous heart grows, as it sort of foments within, it reveals itself in these various ways of sinfulness, grumblings, complainings, quarrels, and fights with others. Coveting is behind much of our other problems in life. James makes this clear, you'll call in chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says that it is the law's reading at this point, you shall not covet, that exposed him as one who was dead in his sins. Proverbs 14.30 reads, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. It's a vivid picture of what happens when we allow that coveting desire to continue to marinate, to grow within, that rots that inner man. And what is it that is behind coveting? Well, it's really an indictment against God, isn't it? It's an accusation against His rule in this world. It's a proclamation that God is not powerful enough to give me the things that I need, that He's not good enough to give me that which I deserve, that He's not loving enough to care about me. At some level, as those covetous desires continue, we believe that God owes us, that He has let me down, that I could do a much better job if I were in charge. It takes that definition of God's providence from our shorter catechism, and it turns it on its head. Instead of resting in the God who has great purpose and control and was working all things for His glory, coveting says, it is my desires that are most holy, wise, and powerful. I know how this world should be governed and how creatures should submit to me. And so coveting truly is a wicked and a destructive thing. So what are some of the ways we covet? And what are some of the things that we covet? This is our second point this evening. What the Tenth Commandment forbids. What this commandment forbids. I think it's interesting that this commandment does not simply say, do not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. The reading of the law does say that, but notice how the Lord gives examples of things that we are not to covet. I think that's because the Lord knows that our heart needs to be pressed at this matter, because we will tend to give ourselves a pass and justify our own discontentment and covetousness. And so what are among those things that we may covet? We might think, first of possessions. In the ancient Near East, the examples given here would be house, servants, ox, donkey. For us, there may be all sorts of possessions that belong to our neighbor that we might covet. Certainly his home or the location of that home on a beautiful lake, his perfectly manicured lawn, the fact that he has a zero-turn lawnmower, his luxury car, 
his wonderfully new electronics and how his home is all wired for all those fancy things. His Wi-Fi electric smoker that he can turn on on his way home from church. (laughs) Coveting begins to take root within the heart when you start thinking of how much more deserving you are of those things than your neighbor, how you would be much more generous if you had those possessions, even judging him for the things that he chooses to own. Now, Jesus knows that we are led to believe that the accumulation of possessions will satisfy. This is nothing new. It was true in his age. It is in our own. He says in Luke 12, 15, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I read somewhere recently a story that followed a number of lottery winners who won some of these mega millions over the last number of years, coming into this massive sum of money, but how it actually ended up destroying their lives. It estranged their families. It made them more susceptible to litigation. It it destroyed friendships and made them miserable to the point that almost all of them wished that they had never won this money in the first place. But the covetous desires within your own heart lead you to believe, yeah, but it would be different for me. But the Scriptures are clear in 1 Timothy 6, 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. In the book of Proverbs, we read in chapter 30, verse 8, Give me neither poverty nor riches. If the Lord gives us poverty, then we may crave and steal and dishonor the Lord. If He gives us riches, the writer recognizes that he will be tempted to presume upon his own ingenuity or strength or insight. But it's not only possessions, you see. We might covet or crave the relationships that another person has. The example that's given here is one who covets his neighbor's wife. Maybe he always seems to get along with his wife. His children seem to have respect and admiration for him. And so someone might be discontent. A husband and wife may be discontent with the spouse that the Lord has given to him or her. Thinking how much better your life would be with a different spouse, one who doesn't have so many weaknesses, annoyances, or bulges in the wrong spot. It's the same with your children. In that sinful heart, you focus upon all of their shortcomings and imperfections. You wonder what it would be like to have kids that sit at your feet and soak up your words of wisdom. You wonder what it would be like to actually have words of wisdom that people would come and seek your guidance and counsel. And just think of how social media creates at least the perception of that imbalance and the disdain that you feel toward the success of another who's always posting some new adventure is always out with their spouse. Oh, you're just jealous because their parents are here and grandparents can always watch their kids, but we have to pay for a babysitter and then we can't even afford to go out for a quick bite. Again, it's that disparity, that inequity that stirs envy within when it comes to these relational discrepancies. But even more than that, we may covet the position another has in life. 
It might be the achievements of your neighbor, his education that has led to this particular vocation in life, the fact that he really didn't even have to work that hard in college because he had a family business that he could move right into where you had to start from the bottom. Maybe it's his skills and abilities professionally or interpersonally. You're envious that he seems to be able to fix anything that breaks within the house or you have to hire someone even for the most rudimentary of projects. Perhaps you're envious at the knowledge and understanding that another has of history or economics or political theory or theology. Whatever trivia game you play, he always seems to know more than you. Maybe you're going through some significant physical trial in your life, and you look at your neighbor who doesn't even know the Lord, doesn't trust in Him, and their life seems to be filled with such ease and comfort while you're going through this trying hardship. Maybe you long to be that age again, coveting that degree of freedom, flexibility, and youthful vigor. Or it could be the spiritual attainments of another that you covet, the elder, the deacon, the pastor, the Bible study leader, you find yourself being overly critical of the things that they say and how you could do so much better if only you were asked to be in that position of leadership instead. In all of this, you believe that you're more deserving or you question the goodness and the providence of God. There is so much to unpack within the hearts, which is convicting But the comfort is that, from one perspective, these are not unique things or unique experiences. We all have them. The psalmist in Psalm 73 confesses his envy to the Lord. He is a member of the covenant community. He is one who is faithful to attend worship and sacrifice to the Lord. And yet those around him are arrogant while they are prosperous They have health and wealth and ease of life, and they don't seem to have the troubles that I do, and yet they are filled with pride. And the temptation for the psalmist is great. He's tempted to give it all up, to forsake the Lord, wondering if all of this has been in vain. Covetousness, envy, jealousy truly have the potential to destroy Thomas Watson writes that coveting is an insatiable desire for more of this world. Coveting is to be more consumed with the things of this earth than the life to come. It's the covetous heart, you'll remember, that Jesus describes in the parable of the soils. You remember when the sower casts his seed among those four various types of soil. It's the seed that grows but is choked out by the thorns because of the deceit and riches of riches and the desires for the things of this world. And so this is the kind of person who might have that momentary conviction when they're with God's people and the word of the Lord is being taught or when they read God's word on their own. But then as soon as they depart from that proximity of conviction or the word of God, they return right back to the cares of the world. Covetousness is such a danger because it can keep us from hearing the gospel as we become consumed with the distractions and with the enticements of this world. The Hamas Abrakel points out that before sin came into the world, Adam and Eve were in complete submission to God's rule and design. 
And they were satisfied with all that their God had given to them and looked toward Him to meet all of their desires. But after sin came into the world, man's gaze shifted, we might say, from that upward gaze looking to their God to provide to a downward gaze to the things of this world, looking to the things of the earth to satisfy. Coveting is behind that first sin that plunged mankind into destruction. Before Eve even reached for that forbidden fruit, she coveted, she envied, she longed for something that was not hers to possess. She was jealous that God would keep something so good from her. She desired to be a law unto herself as she coveted her autonomy. And as we think of our own lives, we would be wise to take time to think about the things that dominate our own minds and hearts. Consider your grumbling and complaining and follow those things back to their origin within. What do you want that you do not have? What do you lack that you have convinced yourself that if you had it, you would be satisfied? Where do you make demands of others as though they are the ones that need to change more than you? What desires seem to control or consume your thoughts? What tends to occupy your time and take your money, energy, and efforts? What fills your conversations among those who know you best? Are you a generally discontent person, only talking about how hard your life is, how others have let you down, how difficult other people are to deal with, how you are always misunderstood? In all of these ways, we are beginning to see where we live for self instead of for the honor and glory of God. Which leads us to what is required in this commandment. And this is our third point this evening. What does the tenth commandment require of me? Well, if we are not to covet, then what is the state of our hearts to be like? Well, in a word, it is contentment. Now, contentment is not mere stoic resignation to the hardships of life. I can't do anything about it anyway. God's going to do what He wants to do. I might as well be content. Well, that's not, of course, contentment. Contentment is joyful, loving rest in the hands of your heavenly Father. And so, certainly, we pray, and it's right to pray for relief from physical pain and hardship while still cultivating hearts of contentment. Certainly, we can pray for the Lord's provision of a godly spouse or children or a stable job while seeking to be faithful to the Lord and joyful even in the midst of disappointment. You see, since contentment is a disposition of the heart, then that means contentment is not tethered to our circumstances. Now, let's consider two wonderful texts that are worth remembering when you are tempted toward that discontentment. First is Psalm 131, if you would turn there with me. And the other, if you would like to turn there and hold it in your Bibles that we'll look at in just a moment, is Philippians chapter 4. Psalm 131, you might recall, is one of those psalms of ascents that we looked at on a Sunday morning some time ago. It's a short psalm. Let's look at it in its entirety. 
a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Now the psalmist here, notice he has learned contentment, which is rest in the Lord in that inner man because he has delighted himself in the creator-creature distinction. In other words, he trusts in the living God who loves him, who cares for him, who rules over all things, and who has purpose in all things. And though there may be many things that are mysterious to him that are not his to know, he can rest in the arms of his Father in heaven. And then in Philippians chapter 4, Beginning in verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. When you read through the book of Philippians, it's so important that you keep in mind that Paul writes this letter from prison. And even there, he claims to have learned contentment in all circumstances. And why? Because there is trust, confident trust in His heavenly Father, knowing that the Lord will strengthen him to endure whatever trials may come. And we too can trust that God knows exactly what He is doing in my life and in the world around. Again, Thomas Watson says, contentment is simply saying, I have enough, and so I will not covet what another has. We believe that we have enough, and so we rest in God's goodness. So, how do we learn contentment? We could put this as our fourth point this evening. Learning contentment, cultivating contentment in our own lives. Well, here are a few things to think about as we close. First is to marvel at the gospel as we learn the gospel. Isn't it amazing that our Savior never coveted was never discontent with his circumstances. He did not come to this earth to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the comfort of the gospel is that if I have Christ Jesus, I need nothing else. Back in Psalm 73, the psalmist grew in contentment as he considered things from the perspective of eternity. He has peace with God through the work of a substitute, while the wicked remain under the wrath of God awaiting that day of judgment. And now he can rest in the mercy of the Lord his God, saying, Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on earth. And so as we hear the gospel, 
week after week as we gather as God's people that helps us to learn to rest in Christ through daily faith and repentance. Instead of connecting the disposition of your heart to the circumstances of this world, you are looking to your heavenly inheritance that awaits you in Christ Jesus. You are convinced that the things of this earth are transient and will never satisfy. You are convinced that the purpose in life is not your personal happiness, but your holiness of life. It's not about your dreams being fulfilled, but it's about living your life for the honor and glory of God. And so marvel in the gospel as you learn the gospel. And the second way to cultivate contentment is to fill your prayers with gratitude. Since coveting focuses upon the things that we don't have, contentment is a gratitude for what we do have. Gratitude and thanksgiving that come as we continue to cultivate this eternal perspective. Thank Him with regularity for the blessings that He has showered upon you, for the salvation that is yours in Christ Jesus, for the pardon of sins and the cleansing of your conscience, for the work of the tender Holy Spirit within your hearts, for the promises of Scripture that you can claim as your own, for the fellowship of the saints, for the gift of life itself, for the provision of all good things that the Lord has given to us. And the list goes on and on of all of the things that should fill the mind and dominate our prayers with thanksgiving and gratitude. And pray to the Lord to enable you to be heavenly minded. Pray that the Holy Spirit would work on that inner man, subduing your hearts and purging out those things that you are tempted to love in this world. And the third way to cultivate contentment is to delight yourself in the loving providence of God. Philip Ryken writes, Contentment means wanting what God wants for us rather than what we want for us. The secret to enjoying this kind of contentment is to be so satisfied with God that we are able to accept whatever He has or has not provided. Notice that important emphasis. Not only are we to be content and grateful for that which the Lord has provided, but we rest in what the Lord has not provided for us. Even longing for something good as it becomes an inordinate desire of the heart and the Lord keeps it from us knows that in our weakness, if we were to possess such thing, such a thing we would bring further destruction in our own life and perhaps the lives of others. And so He is the one who governs all things with wondrous purpose, and so we can trust in Him. And finally, we cultivate contentment by setting our hearts upon the Lord. Calvin writes that the more our affection is set upon the Lord, the more our wills are given to His rule. The more our desires are fixed upon Christ, the more our hearts will be guarded against discontentment. And so really what we're talking about, what Calvin is talking about here is the spirit of the risen Christ ruling our hearts, ruling our desires, 
ruling our longings, ruling our thoughts, ruling our emotions. And it is Christ Himself who has so taken us captive that we have Him, and so we know we need and long for nothing else. We have all that we need in Jesus. We have something so much greater than those passing temporary comforts of this world. We have peace with God through the redeeming work of Jesus. We have forgiveness of sins. We have hope of eternal life. We have an inheritance that is awaiting us that can never perish, spoil, or fade. No one can take it from us, and therefore no one can rob us of joy. These are the things that guard the heart against coveting. Now, the Ten Commandments should lead us to fear God, to love the Lord, to seek His grace. Remember, the law sends us to the gospel for our justification. The gospel sends us to the law to frame our life. And so we long to obey out of gratitude to the one who has saved us. Calvin puts it like this, what amazement that the mercy of God accepts us in Christ Jesus. What wonder that we who are filled with such wickedness, pride, envy, are treated as though we are full of integrity and have fulfilled the law in its entirety. And so allow that amazement and wonder of the pardon of sin in Christ Jesus stir you up within toward greater love, obedience, devotion, and zeal for our Savior.